0: Hello, thank you for joining us. We are proud to welcome you to our special series, Across the Rainbow, brought to you by Brill, where we talk about gender equality, its past, its present, and its future. I'm your host, Lee jean Greco. Today we're talking with Anne Towns, Professor of Political Science at University of Gothenburg, and Katarzyna Izerska, Associate Professor of Political Science at University West. Their article is COVID-19 and Gender, A Necessary Connection in Diplomatic Studies. Welcome. Thank you. So first of all, just a little introduction um, to your piece here. The point of your recent article was to use COVID to raise questions about the gender dimension in diplomacy. So diplomacy remains fairly male-dominated, but we have seen this rapid rise in the number of women in diplomats in the last two decades. Can you tell us a little bit more about those? This is Anne. Um, So in the 19th
1: and early 20th century, um, women were not allowed to serve as diplomats at all. So they were banned legally from diplomacy. And after that, the bans were lifted. Well, then marriage bans on women diplomats were put in their place. So you had a situation where, whereas male diplomats were expected to marry a woman, and that woman was often expected to carry out crucial but unpaid diplomatic duties to help him, female diplomats, they were not allowed to work, to marry. And they had to carry out this work of a diplomatic wife and the work of a diplomat at once. Right? And so these marriage bans on women, they weren't lifted until the 1970s. So it's not really surprising that the number of women in diplomacy remained low throughout the 20th century. Um, but then, in the past 20 years or so, the number of women has risen rapidly, as you suggested, right? So, in some ministries of foreign affairs, like some of the Scandinavian ones in Sweden, for instance, where we're at, um, women are now in the majority. But there really isn't any comparative data, so on numbers of so male and female diplomats. So it's really difficult for us to track these developments over time, and we don't really know. So. Um, because of that, GENDIP, which is this research program on gender and diplomacy that I run together with Katarina and with Brigitte Niklasson, we're putting together a database that looks precisely at this question on gender and, and diplomacy, but we're focusing on, on bilateral ambassadors. And of course the ambassador position is kind of the top or the apex of a diplomatic career and far from all diplomats are ambassadors, of course but at least it's a start we're thinking. And in this database, um, we tracked the number of women and men ambassadors from 1969 until the present. And we haven't analyzed the data yet but we so we can't really say anything specific about the trend but we'll release that data in our analysis shortly. But what we have analyzed is a small slice of that data, and that's ambassador postings made by the 50 wealthiest countries in 2014. And if we look at that data, we see that 85% of the world's ambassadors were male, okay? 85% men. So that tells you, I think, a little something about the male dominance in diplomacy. Um, And the share of women, of course, is larger at the non-ambassador level. But since there's no cross-national data, I can't really say how much larger? And I think to just kind of conclude on that, like a question that animates a lot of my research now is how this male dominance shapes diplomatic practice. So I think we need to ask, right, in what ways and to what extent might diplomacy be formed by and premised on these particular forms of masculinity that might be in place because it's been so male-dominated, right? Right. Because even though women are making inroads, it seems like they have to contend with the male dominance of diplomacy. I mean, the model diplomatic envoy is still in many ways premised on a male diplomat married to a woman who assists him, right? And as Elise Stevenson has shown in her research, women diplomats with wives, they find diplomatic life a lot easier than women diplomats with husbands,
0: That's really fascinating because uh, I remember when I lived in D.C. just talking with friends who wanted to go into diplomacy, wanted to be foreign officers, uh, and they would often mention how male dominated the field was. But I had no idea that there were those actual barriers that were in place up until very recently, as you said.
1: And then there are other more or less explicit barriers that might still be in place, right? Because We know that, and this varies between ministries and foreign affairs, but there are things like, you know, are you, I mean, we need to think about things like, you know, can you give birth while on a posting, right? Is there parental leave or maternity leave while you're on a posting? What kind of support is there for spouses to find work, for instance, right? We know that a lot of male partners are not content with taking the role as a diplomatic wife, which might make it more difficult for women diplomats to bring their families with them on postings, right? These are not formal bans on women diplomats, but it does make life as a diplomat more difficult, right, for a woman than for men. And that said, also, given that, you know, Many more women also want their own careers these days. It also makes life more difficult for male diplomats to some extent that they can't necessarily bring a spouse, right? They can have a career of their own.
0: So with that as the background, can you tell us a little bit about how the move online during COVID affected women in diplomacy?
1: Sure. Um So the move online has obviously shaken up diplomacy in a lot of ways. I mean, some online features had already been integrated into diplomacy, but the pandemic has meant disruption in many central components of diplomatic interactions like the face-to-face meetings, the handshakes, the settings that allowed for interpersonal trust to develop and so on. And we don't really know whether and how this has different implications for men and women diplomats, right? And for that reason, we wrote the article that you mentioned in the Hague Journal of Diplomacy, raising that question. So I can speculate a little bit based on what we do know from existing research. So for one, um, we know that masculinized forms of networking remain, such as around the golf course or at bars. Right, There's been a lot of discussion, for instance, of golf di- diplomacy in the Trump administration. Right, And Deepak Nair has noted in his research the male dominance historically in golf diplomacy in ASEAN. So if the move to online diplomacy disrupts these practices and networks, then that might provide new openings for women. Right. Also, appearance standards in diplomacy are such that women ambassadors have to spend twice as much time as men getting dressed, changing outfits between different events, um, putting on and refreshing makeup, fixing their hair, and so forth. And with the move online, there may not be as much attention to appearances, right? And there aren't all these changes between different events, changes that do take more time for women. So this might also even the playing field a little bit between women and men diplomats. But that said, um, we also know that the online move due to the pandemic is not limited to diplomacy. And in many countries, schools have also moved online, right? And since women remain the primary caretakers in many places, even when they do work, this has meant a huge added workload for women as they juggle children and work in the same space, and there's no reason to believe that this might not also be the case in diplomacy. So the net impact on women and men in diplomacy is not entirely clear, right? There might be some advantages, but there also might be some disadvantages to women and to men. But what we do need is more research to figure this stuff out. So this is our call, right, In in the article, is to just encourage people to ask more questions, right, about gender and diplomacy.
0: Do you feel like you had a limited amount of time because of how long COVID has been going on to sort of assess how women were affected by that move online? I mean, we're now starting to see countries open back up again. I would sort of assume that might mess with the data, kind of using COVID as a control in a way, I guess.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, yes, to some extent, yes, right? This is hopefully of, you know, not a permanent state of, of, Of being but rather something that's you know where we're hopefully we're reverting back to normal soon but we don't know that and we're not there yet so we might still have you know a bit of time and I also think you know obviously you can continue if you rely on interviews for instance you can continue interviewing diplomats for some time after the lockdowns and the moves online right because there will still be They'll still be able to recall like what that situation was, but yes it's a window I think of a few a few years maybe where we can do this research so I think some attentiveness to like you know what the adaptations have been now during the pandemic and the lockdown, but also what will continue afterwards when we study gender and diplomacy, I think is important, and then I think the pandemic itself i 'm just a very critically gender dimensions of the responses and the adaptations of the pandemic raises questions that are more enduring about gender, right? We have to pay attention to the gender dimension when we study these things, right? And we have to pay attention to gender diplomacy. It's just, it's a very integral and central and, and kind of, you know, Absolutely. Just, I mean, it's one of those fundamental structures of diplomacy that's been, you know, unexamined for so long.
0: So speaking of lockdowns, really fascinating part of your article was talking about these gendered lockdowns, uh, which happened in several countries like Peru, for instance. Uh, This often resulted in overcrowded grocery stores because, as you mentioned, women often take uh, the bulk of the domestic work. It also ended up with the harassment of trans people in those countries because people were going out on certain days depending on the gender that they identified with. Um, How does the COVID-19 crisis amplify the need for diplomacy scholars to examine the relations between civil society actors and diplomats?
2: Yes, so Katarzyna speaking now. Um, In general, diplomacy scholarship has paid rather little attention to the links between diplomacy and civil society. So, according to the traditional view, diplomacy is a matter of high-end relations between state officials. Um, but we also know from empirical studies that contacts with civil society actors are an important aspect of what diplomats do. So, for instance, civil society is crucial in the diplomatic task of information gathering uh, about the host country. So, especially in contexts where freedoms of press, uh, freedom of press is curtailed, or in times of fast-tracking legislation, as in the case of COVID nineteen in many countries civil society provides a counterbalance to government controlled media or the official communication. And local activists Mm -hmm. are usually quick in highlighting various law breaches or misconduct of public administration and the government, as well as discriminatory fallouts of legislation. So in the case of Peru that you brought up, uh, but similar solutions were in place in Panama, Bogota um, and Colombia. Um, Policies were legislated to enforce physical distancing is one measure to suppress the spread of the pandemic uh, by restricting the mobility of its citizens. And as you mentioned, these restrictions were based on binary understandings of gender and associated norms. So on, on alternate days, women were allowed to access essential services such as grocery stores and pharmacies, and on other days, um, men. For one, um, this was a logistic problem for people that exist outside of hegemonic understandings of binary gender representations and identities. But the implementation and policing of these binary gender-based laws uh, have also resulted in direct violence perpetrated against transgender communities, also by the police. So thanks to grassroots mobilization of transgender activities and their allies, Um, The gender-based regulation was relatively quickly rescinded in Peru, Um, but such cases make it very clear that marginalized groups and civil society actors supporting them need allies to support um, their organizational capacity, but also to boost their message in the national and international arena. And diplomats who are placed in those countries have the function of such megaphones or supporters, if you wish. So... Uh, One of the projects that we have in Gendip in our gender and diplomacy program um, is exactly studying how frontline diplomats or diplomats placed abroad intersect with civil society actors in various ways. So we try to bring some systematic understanding of the forms and patterns of these interactions.
0: So one data point you brought up that I found really shocking was that as many as 48 countries are at a high risk of authoritarian backsliding as a result of the pandemic. And the measures taken to curb the spread of COVID have also affected women disproportionately. How did COVID put those countries at risk and how did that affect women?
2: Yes, so... Authoritarian backsliding or de-democratization, as it's sometimes called, um, is indeed a growing, um, is, it is growing globally. Uh, so with the, n- the number of countries uh, showing decline in democratic qualities is actually surpassing or has surpassed those that show a strengthening of democracy in the past decade. Um, and we know that an opposition to gender equality and liberalism in general mm-hmm. is linked to authoritarianism. Um, Many of these uh, illiberal regimes implement so-called anti-gender politics at home and abroad. It is politics that openly counter gender equality. And COVID-19 has not made the situation better. Some autocrats have used the pandemic as an excuse to introduce further restrictions um, on civil rights and liberties. Um, And they were not always related, those restrictions were not always related to measures aiming to contain the pandemic. And the fear is that these restrictions will stay even after the pandemic is under control. So in combating the pandemic, both in democracies and in autocracies, um, several of the introduced measures disproportionately affected women, right? And many have brought this up already um, in their publications. So for instance, and these are the things that we also discussed in the paper, the lockdowns and confinements to the home correlate with a spike in intimate partner violence. Um, So the UN estimates um, point to around 20 to 30 percent, an increase of of 20 to 30 percent in intimate partner violence. Then we have unintended or unwanted pregnancies uh, that are on the rise because of restricted access to contraceptives contraceptives during lockdowns. Um, And because of gender and stratification of the labor markets in many countries, uh, women are more at risk um, as they are overrepresented in the essential worker category. So, for instance, as healthcare workers. Um, and then if we apply in a dissectional lens, we can observe that differently situated groups are affected by the corona pandemic and the measures to combat it in various ways. So class, race, sexuality and gender in various constellations might account for, for the multiplying effect of burdens. Um, so, with these exacerbations of gender and other inequalities highlighted by the pandemic, it is more it is more important than ever that uh, for diplomacy and diplomats to engage with civil society and with women's and other marginalized groups' demands. Um, and the sphere of as the sphere of action of progressive CSOs uh, or civil society organizations is shrinking in authoritarian states um, in general, and due to the pandemic even more. Um, all allies those groups can have, and diplomats uh, are very important, such allies um, should come to the front. And there is a growing international schism that we can observe in general um, between this pro and anti gender equality agenda. Um, and diplomats are, and this is a fascinating uh, new uh, front uh, of, of studies, highlighting that diplomats are uniquely equipped to maneuver this line of division.
0: And you mentioned that during the pandemic, there are so many women who are overworked, but in a lot of places, women have also lost jobs disproportionately to men, at least in the U.S., um, the unemployment for women has been much higher. And so I wonder how those factors also contribute to either this authoritarian backsliding or uh, just sort of general inequality for women that's been exacerbated by the pandemic
2: Well so we do, I mean, as you say there are the effects go in many different ways they hit women and other groups they hit men as well obviously in, in various ways and it's very hard to say exactly how this um, contributes to more autocratization this specific, this, these specific effects. What we know is that authoritarianism or the turn towards authoritarianism correlates with um, anti-gender policies quite often. Um, so uh, women will be um, either discriminated directly, women's groups uh, will be um, harassed in various ways, legally and discursively, and so on. So, so, so it's not that those specific measures against uh, or combating. Um, um, the pandemic will lead to more authoritarianism. We don't know that exactly, but we know that women are uh, targeted by authoritarian regimes. We know that COVID uh, lockdowns and COVID, COVID, various COVID measures um, have hit women uh, in various ways. And we we need to study more and understand more about those. How does the dynamics play out?
0: There are two other authors of this article as well. And Catherine Krefta and Brigitte uh, were there certain insights from them at all that you wanted to include or, or give some voice to on this podcast?
1: I should probably mention that Brigitte Niklasson has she's one of the first people to do work on whether there are women-based or women's networks within diplomacy and whether women network differently than men do. And she she suggests that there are indeed ways in which women kind of reach out more to to women's organizations or that they, you know, when they do, you know, con- make connections in civil society, that it's they have access to women's spaces that men may not have access to, and so forth. And that's, you know, I raised that a bit already in the interview, but that's an important dimension to keep in mind, right? That even, you know, as we move online, there might still be these kind of gender dynamics in terms of who speaks to whom and who has relations relationships and access to whom, right, that might might be shaped by gender. So Anna Keft's work, I mean, she does work on, on sexualized violence and conflict and how women mobilize in response, politically mobilized in response to that violence. And so she has, you know, raised this issue of kind of how the international community responds to and connects with that mobilization. And I think that's a very important dimension to keep in mind too. And a set of questions someone should ask, right? Like, what is the role of diplomats and diplomacy in meeting kind of women's organization, women's mobilization, not just in the COVID pandemic and in responding to that, but more broadly to to sexualized and you know, and gender based violence against. women women.
0: Do you feel that uh, because of what we've been through with COVID, that perhaps some of those issues that you mentioned, gender-based violence, for example, will get more attention in diplomacy, that there will be more resources devoted to it because you now have sort of a blueprint from COVID as far as handling things through the consulate, as you mentioned?
1: Yes, I actually do feel a little bit optimistic about that. That I do think that there's more attentiveness. And I I know that there are embassies and there are diplomats. They're working on kind of a restart of like, you know, doing like starting over and and starting in the right place after the COVID epidemic, because it is so clear, right, that how the pandemic has played out, you know, who it affects and the responses is just permeated by inequality, Right? It does not affect people equally or in, in similar ways. right? And gender is, of course, just one of many relations of inequalities. It's obviously not the only one, right? but it is one of them. And it has become clear, I think, to lots of people that, like just how gendered the pandemic is. So I do think that with that and then with the increasing attention to gender issues and feminist issues with the declarations of feminist foreign policies, The kind of convergence of those two issues, I do think, you know, imply or suggest that there might be more, even more attention to this after, you know, after the worst parts of the pandemic have played
2: out. There is more and more evidence that, um, as as we discussed, the authoritarianism and the trend in in the world is um, paired with anti-gender policies. And diplomats are discussing this. So, so on one side, we have this huge, like larger part of, of the countries that sign up to anti-gender values. And then we have uh, countries that are um, putting feminism on their foreign policy. So this becomes like a very polarized discussion internationally. Uh, and diplomats both represent those both ends or both poles, uh, but also have to negotiate that. So, so I definitely think that this is the gender issues uh, will be... More more and more on
0: the agenda in the international yeah. discussions, so I agree. That's Ketashana Erzerska. She's an Associate Professor of Political Science at University West, and Anne Towns, Professor of Political Science at the University of Gothenburg. They're authors of Covid Nineteen and Gender: A Necessary Connection in Diplomatic Studies. Thank you so much to you both. Thank you. Thank you. You are listening to the Humanities Matter podcast. You can find more podcast episodes on Apple Podcast, Spotify, and Google Podcast.